Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to talk about what that looks like, how that operates today and at the time of Christ. Because the kingdom of God was to be sought, pursued, uh, strived to obtain. Uh, it was a setting the people free once they understood the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, w- I would estimate that probably more than half of the Christians today don't even have a slight understanding of, of people calling themselves Christians, have a slight understanding of what Jesus was actually telling people to do and not to do. It, it's right there in the text, but they have created a alternative to true Christianity. And of course they call it Christianity. And there are people everywhere who think they believe in Christ. And Jesus said that they would be around. They'd be all over the place. And they'd be enticing people to follow him. And actually what they're doing is getting people to follow an image of him that is just not so. And that they would actually be workers of iniquity. They would be professing Jesus Christ, probably as their Lord and Savior, with their mouth, with what they say. But what they did, do and did and have done for centuries now is actually been workers of iniquity, actually opposing Christ. And you think, well, that, that seems so strange, but of course Christ predicted it. And at the time of Jesus Christ, who who agreed with Moses in, in the, what they call the transfiguration, Jesus is supposedly standing talking with Moses and Elijah. So they were in agreement. But the Pharisees and Sadducees and many other Jewish sects, or we could say political parties, were actually in opposition to Christ because according to Christ, they were also in opposition to Moses. Yet they claimed they were following Moses. They had the Torah, the Holy Scripture of its day, which is what we call the Old Testament, or at least part of the Old Testament. And they came to a particular conclusion that to follow Moses meant to do this, 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 and this. And according to Jesus, they were wrong. They were sitting in the seat of Moses, but they were wrong about their interpretation. They spoke Hebrew. They read the Hebrew text. They were using the Septuagint to some degree, but they had ancient texts available. And there were religious sects. You could even say political parties, but they weren't a party like you would think of a political party today. That said that the Pharisees' interpretation of the Torah was a fiction and a fraud. They thought that 
the Pharisees' interpretation of the Torah was completely incorrect. And many of the things that that group did, which were very similar to what Christ said we should do, when they looked at the the practices of the Pharisees, they actually did very uh, a great many things contrary to the way that the Pharisees did things. And I haven't named the group because it really wasn't a group. It wasn't a homogeneous group. It wasn't like they had some sort of top-down hierarchy. They were kind of a scattered group, but they were all over the place. They'd been around for hundreds of years. They went by all kinds of different names, and historians have tried to group them with one particular name, and nobody even knows where that name even came from and what it means. But they were around at the time of Jesus Christ. There is some good evidence that they, many of them became Christians, you know, historical evidence that many of them became Christians. But of course you have to remember that Christians weren't even called Christians until Antioch. So what is a real Christian? Well, we write about that all the time, but that's not going to be the topic of our discussion today. We're going to go into ideas like uh, the skills of being in the kingdom and seeking the kingdom and doing what Christ said. Because... It takes a certain amount of skill to seek the kingdom, to to pursue it in your day-to-day life. You need to know how to do it. I mean, it's just like anything. Practice makes perfect. And you are not practiced in the ways of the kingdom. You're practiced in the ways of covetousness, which is why most Christians are actually merchandise. And most, I'm saying Christians... Modern Christians, most people claiming to be Christians, which are really modern Christians. Now, I don't know of all the modern Christians, which are most all Christians, I would fall under the category of a modern Christians. Uh, and we have an article up describing what we mean when we say the term modern Christian. I mean, you could, you could find all kinds of fault with what I say because I say so much. <laughs> but we, we write down what we mean and we and we hone it and and clarify it so you you wouldn't have any difficult shouldn't have any difficulty in figuring out what we're talking about but many of you will not understand what we're talking about you'll think that, that we're talking in in circles or in in uh, uh contradictory terms but yet there they are written right there now you won't have any or very little way of criticizing what we actually say, you'll find all kinds of uh, critical things to say about us, ad homonyms and call us names and all that kind of stuff. But we write down so that you can examine what we are saying and why we are saying it. And so we don't actually get any good debaters who will debate what we say Uh in any kind of a forum because of the fact that we make it pretty clear where we're coming from and we've done our homework and we've written it down so that you can examine it and you can find out if there is error in what we say. Now, of course, now we've we've quoted many sources and some of those sources may have varying degrees of reliability. Uh but that they are sources out there. And we tell you where the sources are so that, you know, you can weigh the evidence. 
But ultimately, you're not going to believe what we're telling you about the kingdom of heaven being at hand and being an actual way of which to govern yourself in this world and in this life. You, you, you can take a look at all this stuff, but you're not going to understand it unless it's written on your heart and upon your mind. And when it's written upon your heart and your mind, you'll, you'll see a lot of the things that we say and you, 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 this will cause you to ponder and, and maybe consider things. But mostly what you will do is start recognizing that you kind of knew that already. I mean, many people know there's something wrong with modern religion. And there's a lot of people that are vehemently, you know, angry with modern religion, hate Christians. And uh, and I'm not going to say without some cause, uh, because there are a lot of hypocritical Christians, so-called modern Christians out there, that say one thing but do another. It has been for a long time, because they're not real Christians. They're this modern Christian, this this alternative Christian created by theologians and uh, philosophers and and by the people themselves. Who, who create, recreate Christ in the image that they like, and then they say, I believe in Christ. But Christ said many things, direct statements, not to do this, to do this, and I can show you without question. And this, I mean, they get really angry when I do this, but I can show you without question. Many of these people who claim to be modern Christians or claim to be Christians are actually modern Christians and are actually doing absolutely the opposite of what Jesus said to do. As a matter of fact, they're making the Word of God to none effect. On a regular basis, as a matter of policy, not as, you know, like I was weak and I, I did this sinful thing. No, you choose to sin against Christ on a regular basis. And if you're a Jew, you choose, most of the Jews I know, choose to violate the commandments of the Torah on a daily basis. As a matter of policy. Boy, that is a radical statement. Most Jews, most Christians, you know, more than 50%. You know, it may be a very high percentage, but... Uh, so this kind of separates us out quite a bit. I mean, we're we're way out on a limb here. This is radical stuff. But is it true? Because it could be true. What I'm telling you could be true. And if it is, we're in for a lot of trouble. We're in for a lot of trouble. So anyway, I, I posted a number of new pages in the last week. I, I posted one on Larkin Rose. Uh, I, I posted one on Guru uh, Theories. And, uh, you know, we've been expanding that. Larkin was one of these gurus. A lot of people are listening to Larkin Rose. And, and a lot of the stuff he says it may actually be true. But some of the stuff, some of the logic that he's following is just not actually correct. It's it's incorrect, and you start putting these pieces of the puzzle together, and you you have gaps between them. That's one of the things about logic, you know. Like if you're doing a 
uh, a theorem in geometry, you have to go this step and then this step and this step. And if you jump from one step to maybe step four or five, you may be wrong because you didn't go through it step by step. And so, therefore, your answer will be wrong because you, you left out part of the process. I mean, it's like solving an equation. You know, you're supposed to do the uh, negative and positive and the multiplication and division. If you do things out of order, you're going to get the wrong answer. If you leave, you can't just leave out numbers. You know, you got to put all the pieces in there in order to fit together. And uh, and Larkin leaves some important things out. I mean, I'm not picking on him. But if people are going to be following him, let's take a critical look. I mean, he is someone who takes a critical look at the world today. And he is trying to figure out what's what. And he's put his life on the line and he's risked himself and, and, and he's got a lot of courage. Uh, sounds very angry a lot of the time. But, uh, you know, I've never met him, so he may be a really nice guy. Uh, but the reality is, is that when I'm following his logic... There are holes in it, and and he could lead people into trouble following some of his ideas. And so we publish this so that Larkin can see it, and, and you can go see it at preparingyou.com, and, and Larkin could go see it. I was going to actually encourage somebody to, you know, send the webpage to Larkin. I don't know how to get a hold of him. I could probably find that out, but I've been pretty busy lately, so... Share it with them. And some of the other lists of names under these uh, Guru Theories uh, webpage, uh, we'll be looking at them and uh, examining what they say and maybe where they might be wrong. And we do it out of love for them as well as all those people who might follow after them because we don't want people to get into trouble. We don't want pe- we don't want to see people hurt because we have to care about other people as much as we care about ourselves, and so we take the time to do this as a service, not only to the people that we're talking about, their public figures, but to the people who might follow their advice. And this is this this attitude to do this. As many as I love, I also rebuke. If I find something wrong with what you're saying, and you're a public figure, I may expose that. And share with you, wait a minute, I don't think that's correct. And I put it up there in writing so that we can find out, you know, if I'm wrong, you can come and tell us and we can fix something. But, uh, you know, we're not going to talk behind anybody's back. We're going to put it out there what we're actually saying. But the guy we're going to talk about probably in this show is a guy named James Scott. And he's a professor... Uh, and, uh, he's got, uh, uh, a number of books that he's published. Uh, he's considered a distinguished sterling professor of political science and a professor of anthropology and is a director of an agrarian studies program at Yale University. Uh, the authority... Uh, let's see, he's authored a couple of different books, uh, Seen Like a State, How Certain Schemes to Improve the Human Condition Have Failed, 
So that that's one book that he's written. And The Art of Not Being Governed. And uh, it goes on to explain what that's about. An Anarchist History of the Upland Southeast Asia. And he looks at a particular group of people. Uh, if you if you look it up on Google, uh, they have a synopsis of that particular book. It says, for 2,000 years, the disparate groups that now reside in Zomia, the mountainous region uh, the size of Europe that consists of portions of seven Asian countries, have fled the projects of the nation-state societies that surrounded them. Slavery, conscription, taxes, Corvey. He's one of the few authors I see who even mentions Corvey or Corvey, if you read it in the French. Uh, Epidemics and warfare that are often accompanying these nation-state societies. Uh, He says, This book is essentially uh, an anarchist history is the first ever examination of a huge literature on nation-building whose author evaluates why people would deliberately and reactively remain stateless. Actually, I was just uh, contacted by somebody in Romania. It's interested in forming a congregation and, and becoming a part of our network. Um, he's been around for a while. Uh, it seems to me that there are groups of people in Romania and also in Bulgaria that within the state remain stateless. They don't sign up for state benefits. I know people that have been in Santo Domingo and they say that like 20% of Santo Domingo, now this is, I haven't verified this, but he says about 20% of Santo Domingo do not obtain a Sessula card, which would be a, the equivalent of a Social Security card in the United States. And they get away with this because a lot of them live in the mountains of Santo Domingo. Now that's a pretty small, isolated island, you know, I mean, it's part of the same island that Haiti is on. But they live in the mountains and it's a fairly tropical climate and fruit grows on trees everywhere. And you can survive up there with a little bit of hard work. And if you don't get a Sessula card, when you work for somebody, you get to keep 100% of your pay. But you also don't have employee-employer protection because you're not really an employee through the Sessula card. So you may get paid less. Uh, you may be abused as an employee. You're not really considered an employee because you're not a registered employee. You don't have a Sessula card. And so, but, you know, people do give you work and they can give you work and they don't have to do with any holding, withholding. If you, if you get a job with a Sessula card, you can figure about 20% is coming out of your wages and that will go to the government. But the government will take care of you provide you with some sort of health care, public schools, uh, probably some sort of pension they claim that they'll be giving you. I don't know all the details in Santa Domingo. But this is the pattern you see all over the world. And in places like Romania, there are people who live outside the system, remain what you would call stateless. And uh, there are people in Bulgaria and there's people in Malaysia. And evidently, this author is writing about people in Zomia, 
which is this area, this mountainous area, the, the size of Europe, uh, that is actually uh, borders or within, you know, the map uh, of, you know, if you look on the map and they show you all the countries that touch in Zomia, there's at least part of Zomia is in at least seven different Asian countries. And these people want to remain stateless. And he says until 1945, this was this was very common all over the world. There were always areas that where people were not a part of the state. They were kind of lived in the state, but not of the state. They were not, uh, you know, before 1945, before the 1940s, you could travel from one country in Europe to the other. You could travel all over Asia. And you didn't even have a passport. You were called an international. You would just enter a country. Um, gypsies did it all the time, but also some fairly wealthy merchants. They would not claim any particular country, and they would just travel from country to country, and they were called internationals. And they didn't need a passport to go from country to country. After World War II, that was not the case. You had to be a part of a country, a citizen, subject citizen of a country, to be and to travel anywhere. Now, that, now since uh, 9-11, that's become even more paramount than ever. It used to be that if you were an American, you could just about go anywhere. Now, you get an American passport, etc. But now, the, the, that uh, ability to travel about is narrowing even more. And this is really, in the whole history of mankind, this has never existed before. This idea of having this uh, title, this passport to travel anywhere. And that you have to have allegiance to one country or another. You cannot be stateless. It's becoming illegal to be stateless. And if you are part of a state, you must belong to the state religion. Now, what is the state religion? Now, if I use the word religion, immediately everybody thinks a particular thing. But we explain this too in writing. And we show you the definitions. The religion was how you took care of the needy of your society. That's what religion was. Public religion, you used public temples that people paid into. And the government paid into Occasionally the government would pay into it. But most of the money the government got, it simply took from other people. In the case of Rome, they were taking tribute from lots of other countries and putting it into the public coffer. When when uh, Octavius defeated the uh, his opponents, who were the people who were pro-republic and anti-empire, he confiscated all their property for himself. Now, he shared, you know, half of that probably with his soldiers. But he also took a great deal of that wealth for himself. And then he could give it back to the people in the form of welfare. Now, the government had a welfare, but half of the welfare of Rome was supported by Octavius at one given time. So, understanding these welfare systems were actually religious changes our view of history. We'll be back and show you what this means today.
So welcome back. So in the, the synopsis of the book, The Art of Not Being Governed uh, by James Scott, and we've put up numerous videos on him on the webpage that we've uh, published concerning some of his work. But um, he admits that some of his claims are bold, to say the least. Uh, it's something we've been telling people for years and years, but he actually takes it another level, doing a great deal of academic research. And he depends on other uh, academists, uh, Pierre uh, Clustres and uh, Owen Latimer, uh, or and actually uh, Owen's wife. Uh, he he was born in the 1900s and. He doesn't have the some of the scholastic uh, credentials that some of these other uh, people that uh, James or even James has, um, but he has extreme experience, a very adventuresome life, uh, traveled all over Asia, was an advisor to Chiang Kai-shek. I mean, the guy knew his stuff and wrote a great deal. And, and taught at universities for years and years and years because of the fact that he had this extensive knowledge and understanding that was developed from actually on-the-ground experience in these places. He knew the people. He knew their motivations. And even though this book is basically examining uh, this Zomia region of Asia... Uh, James picks from many other examples of this same uh, phenomena where people are not, they, you know, we have this tendency to think, and we're kind of taught this in school, that if people haven't formed a nation and a state, you know, that, uh, and are not becoming, they're these non-registered people, uh, what the Greeks would call idiotis, non-registered people, and we've written articles on that. Uh that they, it's because they're primitive, because they are ignorant, and they're, you know, they're they're idiots. <laughs> you know, that's why the word idiotis, which means non-registered, uh, is becomes the word idiot, because people who are registered in the state think that you're stupid for not registering with the state and becoming a part of the state, and and uh, which is actually this worldwide no place to stand unless you're a part of a state idea is in the uh, history of mankind is but like a few minutes of his existence. Now, obviously, if you were going to live in Sodom and Gomorrah, you were going to have to become a subject citizen. I mean, James even points out that the walls that they built around their cities, some of them quite extensive, including the Great Wall, was not simply to keep the enemy out. Uh, but uh, as Yul Brynner says in Magnificent Seven, Seven, the walls were made to keep you in, <laughs> not to keep you out. Uh, and uh, that was because they they wanted a controlled population and James has done a great deal of work, great deal of research in exactly what the state does to create that control and what people like the people of Zomia have done to prevent 
that control from taking hold on their lives. Now, it, it, like it, the alternative name or the secondary name of this is a, a book uh, included the idea of anarchism. You know, this history of anarchism. Uh, and uh, yet James says he's not an anarchist. That he thinks there's that we need to rein in the control of government, but he doesn't think you know, an anarchist isn't somebody who wants chaos. An anarchist is somebody who doesn't want the state as an exercising authority over every aspect of his life. He anarchy uh, comes from the the Greek word that has to do with rule. Doesn't want to be ruled by other people. Uh, doesn't mean that he doesn't believe that there are rules or that he doesn't believe that uh, there is a natural uh, course of things and, and right reason and all these things. That he, he doesn't necessarily want chaos. He doesn't want to blow things up. He, he just doesn't want to be ruled by somebody else's whim or desire. And, and we have articles up on anarchism including the our reference to Christ as the beloved anarchist. Because when he appointed the kingdom to the apostles, saying to them, he told them he was going to take the kingdom away from the Pharisees, because they, and he was going to give it to another group that was going to bear fruit. He said he was, uh, go, it was going to be his good pleasure to appoint a kingdom to his little flock. That was his apostles and those who were immediately following and doing things the way he said and were his disciples, his students, learning the ways of the kingdom, receiving specific instruction. And then when he appoints that kingdom, he says, you're not to be like the governments of the other nations. You know, the rulers of the other nations, the princes of the other nations, the presidents and prime ministers of other nations. You're not to be like them. Because they exercise authority one over the other. They force the contributions of the people. That's not the form of government that Christ was creating. Christ was creating a government that operated on faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. Christians began to take care of one another. They had their own system of Corbin, of welfare, of pure religion. A daily ministration to take care of the needy of their society. That needs to really sink in. Because now I've had people who supposedly are studying the first century church. And I point that out. That the church the and the Christians who followed Christ had their own system of social welfare. Those that had shared with those that didn't have enough. And they did it through a network of ministers that kept everybody in contact with one another. This allowed them not to have to register to obtain, because you had to register to obtain the benefits of the free bread of Rome. The free bread, that's their welfare system. They called it Corban. Uh, they called it, you know, the, it was run through the temples. And once you signed up, you had to pay in according to how much money you made. They accepted free will donations for centuries, but now, under this new idea of state religion, you would have to pay in to this central treasury, and then it would be doled out 
And, you know, they had their overseers to prevent corruption and everything. But we know those systems became corrupt. They were pilfered. That treasuries were emptied out through the back door. Thieves and robbers broke in and took the gold away. But what we don't necessarily realize is why such systems make the Word of God to not affect. Because they're not based on this personal sacrifice, this free will offering, this perfect law of liberty, where those that have get to decide to share with those that don't have enough. Now, of course, we could all just say, well, we're all supposed to be sharing. Everybody just go out there and... And just share whenever you run across somebody in needs, you can give them a few bucks and then you can feel good about yourself. Except that is chaos. That is uh, anarchy too. But it's anarchy with chaos. Anarchy means without rulers. But you that only works for people who are ruled over in their hearts by the character of Christ. If you don't have the character of Christ in your in you to not have any authority over you and to be selfish and to be unforgiving and to be you know, to isolate yourself it's not gonna work. Especially today with the the states drawing lines on a map and saying all these people in Zomia belong to us. And the people are saying, no, you don't. <laughs> we don't belong to you. We are, we're, we're free. I mean, there was an island discovered and it's off the coast of India somewhere. Town, I don't think it's as far east of Malaysia, but maybe it's in that area. But anyway, they found an island and nobody, you know, they've gone in and they film closely at the Indians. But nobody has gone in and made contact with these Indians because supposedly if you get shipwrecked on that island, they kill you. Uh, they have no contact with the outside world. Now, anthropologists are interested because they believe those people would have no immunity to diseases either. And so they they kind of let them stay kind of isolated on that island. But they are essentially stateless. They're not necessarily good people, though. Uh, I don't know. I've never met them. Nobody's met them. <laughs> uh, they are so isolated on their island. But Christ wasn't isolating Christians. He wanted them to live in the world, but not of the world. Not to partake of the Corbin of the Pharisees that made the Word of God to none effect. He, but he wanted them to have a Corban, a sacrifice amongst themselves, the Eucharist of Christ, where everybody gave freely in a system of charity to help those people who really fell on need from time to time. And this is the way in which a society survives during hard times. There's a shortage of bread, shortage of food, shortage of money. And so people come together and they share in a way that makes everybody stronger. Because Sodom and Gomorrah had their system of welfare. But it was a system that did not strengthen the poor. That strengthening has to do with the art of not being governed. That skill that comes with a society that wishes to remain separate and not dependent upon the government, but 
doesn't have the skill, it has to develop that skill. Now, what's happened is over the last 100 years, at least over the last 50, 60 years, people have become more and more and more dependent upon government, whatever that is. You know, government of the United States, government of Canada, all these governments. We're becoming more and more dependent upon them. You can't, I mean, your kids are educated by the government and your health care is provided by the government, your welfare, your social security, your elderly. Your parents are taken care of by the government. They're not taken care of by you. A hundred years ago, your parents were taken care of by the family. And if your kids all died out, your neighbors helped take care of you. And people didn't die. People actually went to the trouble of helping you out. Today, that isn't the case. You don't have the government coming to your door to help you out. You're going to die. Nobody's going to come and help you. Not, at least not very many. Oh, they'll give you 10, 20 bucks, but they're not really going to help you. They're not going to really take care of you. If you fall on hard times. Now, I know a lot of people that are young and they're strong and they're independent and they say, well, I don't need government assistance. And maybe they're raising a family, and I don't need. But now, the way the societies have gone throughout the world, if you don't become a part of their system of state religion, you know, because the state, see, when the state takes care of your parents, that's a religious institution. When the state takes care of the poor and the needy of your society, that's a religious institution. Now, it's based on force because the state uses force. It exercises authority one over the other. But Christ says you need to take care of one another without force. John the Baptist did this without force. If you have extra, share with those that don't have enough. You have two coats, share. You have extra food, share. But he's not talking about chaotically sharing. Not saying, you know, take all the extra money you have and just set it out there on, by the curb and anybody who needs it can come and get it. No, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about wise sharing. And of course, this is what Moses was talking about. If you remained immoral and, and abusive and alcoholic and you didn't want to sober up and you wanted to beat your wife and you didn't want to work because you were lazy, you didn't get any of the social welfare of Israel. Levites would cut you off. The st- living stones of the altar would cut you off. You were stoned by them, not rock stone at. You were cut off. They didn't have to kill you. They just had to cut you off. Because eventually you're going to need help. Everybody eventually needs help. Unless you just suddenly drop dead of a heart attack. You know, we were just talking about some of the relatives in our family going back to grandfathers. We had one grandfather about 61 years old just suddenly keeled over at the dinner table. Head fell on the on the table and he was dead. Somebody else, uh, you know, I've got lots of relatives now because i got lots of children who've gotten married. So they're not necessarily in my direct lineage. But... Uh, you know, two marriage that were related to him and somebody else was walking across the street with a sack of eggs and fell over dead. 
Somebody else was collecting firewood, just walking in and fell over dead. Uh, just outside the, you know, walking, he was going to take the firewood down, I guess, in the basement. And he was just outside and he's just laying there dead. That quick. Now, others died more slowly. But eventually, we all face death. We all face disease. We all face difficulties. And so, in society, in order to create the bond, you know, we can all be robbed. We can all be attacked. There could be invading armies. There could be all kinds of things. Plagues. Uh, meteorites. Uh, Nibiru. Whatever could come and all of a sudden cause trouble. Economic collapses and dearths or whatever you want to call them. These things happen. So, how does a society help out the members of its society in a way that strengthens society and its members. Rome got the idea that you force everybody to contribute. We have a large treasury and then we take from that treasury. Now they got that idea from the Greeks and the Greeks got it from the Babylonians and it's been around for a long time. It's popular in America, it's popular in Canada, it's popular in Santo Domingo, but in all these countries... There are people who that does not sit right with. Sometimes it's because they don't like to pay in. They think they're invincible. They think they'll never need help. You know. But they just mostly don't like to pay in. They don't want to share their stuff with anybody else. And they certainly don't want to share by force. But that's not enough. In, in the art of not being governed, you have to learn to share. If you don't share, you will be governed eventually. Maybe you'll be in a wheelchair. But you will be governed. You will be subject. What Christ was saying, if you want to be free, the truth is you cannot covet your neighbor's goods. If you want to be free, the truth is you have to forgive. If you want to be free, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. You even have to love your enemy. You certainly have to love the stranger in your midst. You certainly have to take care of your own family. But you should not forsake the gathering together in this taking care of one another. So... When James looks at these different nations, he's looking at some of the things that help them stay separate from the ever-encroaching states. He points out that the fact that they live in the hills or they live free in the forest. That's a phrase that they refer to themselves as living free in the forest. And he points out why they were motivated to do that. To develop the art of not being governed. Now we've been writing about that for years because we've been writing about Christ. Because Christ said you are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority. Now the modern Christian, he gets to go and apply to the benefactors who exercise authority. He gets to make the state his father. And now he asks the state for permission to marry. He he has to have permission to teach his children at home. And in some countries, they don't give you permission. Um, he has to ask permission to do almost everything from the state because the state is his father. And we document exactly why Jesus said that 
the term at the time, what it meant, and how it was used. So Christ said to call no man on earth your father. And you think that that was talking about Catholic priests. No, it was talking about those people who would play the role of Patronus or conscripted patres, the fathers of a nation, this nation state. Because not only were they going to exercise what they call parents patria, you know, this father of the nation, right and authority. And we, we go through this a little bit in uh, Larkin Rose deal because Larkin talks like there's absolutely no right that the government has. It just says it has a right and then it claims this right to rule and it doesn't have it and I don't have to obey them. And he just completely ignores that there is a legitimate authority in government. And by ignoring it, he sets you up. And it also keeps you from attending to the weightier matters, the whole truth, and to provide for it. The truth is the state obtains most of its right to rule because it takes over the position of the father of the household. It's literally cutting off the heads of your natural fathers. They don't have the authority. The state has the authority. The state can take your kids away from you. The state can make you educate them this way. They can make them have vaccinations. They can they can use them for experiments. I mean, you are livestock. Even your census department is counting you through the agricultural department. <laughs> so, um, that's what's happened. And that's why these people... We're hiding in the hills, learning the art of not being governed. They were learning how to be governed by themselves without governing one another. Coming together in free societies according to the perfect law of liberty. Now, you know, they're running around, you know, with the loincloth in the mountains, in the forests or whatever, uh, in some sort of network of tribal communities learning to get along, learning to survive on their own. But now, more and more, society is encroaching even on them. And like he says, until 1945, people could live separate. Now, you can't hardly do it. And he he wants to rein in government, this Yale professor, James Scott. But I'm telling you, it's become too big a beast. You will not be able to rein it in. And, and he, he briefly mentions this, the, one of the things that frees people from that state, besides running to the hills and, and you know, living in the forest, is the collapse of the state. And then, you know, he kind of points out that then the state's not a problem because it's completely collapsed. It's become powerless. It's uh, become ineffective. The problem with that is you have become dependent upon the state. As a society, some of you, you know, some of you may be individuals who think, well, I'm not dependent upon it. I do my own work and I take care of myself and I have a well and, you know, I plant my garden and I eat out of my garden and I've become, you know. It's interesting, James Scott is also part of the food sovereignty movement. And we put one video up on his uh, comments on that. He he opposes 
the uh, phrase food sovereignty. He says it's too hard to spell. <laughs> he doesn't like the word sovereignty to be used there. You know, he's talking about food independence or, you know, whatever. But the reality is, is it, it's interesting that he would find himself enmeshed in that group too because he must have some sympathy for the people of Zumia. Uh, and their their desire to be free of the state. He himself is, of course, now as a Yale University professor, he's not going to claim to be an anarchist. But he, in explaining in his book, and that's what we're going to be talking about next, this art of not being governed, this skill of being separate, may be important if the system collapses. And we'll talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, I said that we were going to be talking about this art of not being governed uh, book by uh, James Scott and uh, how that interprets today because really that's what Christ was teaching people is not how to you know rebel or to uh, uh, get out of taxes or any of that stuff but he was teaching the art of not being governed by men by teaching them the art of being governed by God. And then if you were actually, if Christians today, people claiming to be Christians today, were actually doing what Christ said, you know, if all all the Christians in America who claim to be Christians in America were actually doing what Christ said, 
America would still be a free nation. It's not a free nation. And people say it's the freest nation. No, it's not. Not at all. I mean, 20% of the people in San Domingo <laughs> don't have a session. I don't think you could say that about people in the United States. The United States is very unfree. It's very comfortable. I mean, I stay comfortable for long, but it's not necessarily free. And and I don't want to pick on the United States because we can go to Canada. I'm sure there are parts of Canada where people live rather free <laughs> because they're out there living free in the woods, in the forests. And uh, and uh, they're doing that. But really, uh, it's not about isolating yourself away from the world. And, and th- there was an interesting uh, word when I was looking at uh, the... Uh, description of uh, the, the synopsis uh, where and I, I find it over over again in, in book reviews where they're talking about uh, for thousands of years that these people in Zomia uh, were uh, they lived as disparate groups not desperate but disparate groups and uh, this idea of uh, of disparate is essentially that these groups are different in kind and uh, so different that they don't really allow comparison. Uh, what I don't really necessarily think the word is 100% used correctly as to what he's saying because what they, they, they are different in the way that they live, so different that you can't compare them with the people that live in the cities. And he he points out very clearly that the people who lived in the city-states, because originally states were city-states, now whole vast regions are considered states, and occasionally you'll find people living in the hills in Santo Domingo or Romania or whatever, and they're living separate from the state, not registered, not a part of it, not receiving its benefits, and are living rather independent, but uh, constantly being encroached upon by this ever-growing influence of the state. But now we see the states entering into what always takes place, but now in a world of 7 billion people where the states begin to collapse. They will not go gently into the night. (laughs) When they start to collapse, they will... Uh, writhe about and, uh, you know, you're liable to get kicked or killed or rolled over on or bit or whatever because they will not go gently into the night. Uh, they will fight for their existence. And right now we see thousands, millions upon millions of people dying of cancer or something living inside them that is different than them, genetically altered. Is now, you know, their own cells have become cancer cells. Not, that's a cell without their identity that is growing independently in them that eventually is going to kill them. And they are literally being killed by their own tissue and which is no longer carrying their identity. Cancer is an identity problem. We have that problem. A cancer on a social level, on a societal level. There's a cancer growing in our society. And, and in the Christian community specifically, because they have accepted an idea that is not Christ. 
And yet they still believe that they're Christians. But that idea is like a cancer growing in them. And it has grown to the point where Christianity is, is going to be absolutely despised and attacked. And to tell you the truth, rightly so. But unfortunately, true Christians will be swept up in this. There are not very many true Christians, but there could be a lot more because all it requires is that you repent. The problem is, most people don't know what they are to repent of. Obviously, if you're a murderer and you're killing people on a regular basis, uh, you need to repent of that and start thinking, wait a minute, murder's a bad idea. I shouldn't be killing all these people. (laughs) Okay? If you're committing adultery, I mean, if you had an affair and you've had multiple wives and now you're having another affair and betraying your wife, you need to repent of your adultery. I'm sure you can go and rationalize that, you know, that, you know, Abraham had more than one wife and, you know, all this other stuff. But, of course, disaster occurred because he was straying from the formula. From the beginning, one man, one woman, that's the deal. Uh, you can have more if you want, but you're going to suffer the consequences of doing that. I mean, that's it, to stray from the formula. You will suffer the consequences. So, what is the one thing that seems to be pervasive throughout society? Well, covetousness. Everybody wants benefits at the expense of their neighbor, and they want a government that can exercise authority, not an anarchy. They want a government that can exercise authority to make one class of citizen, or or maybe all citizens, force their contributions to get what they want. And in the, the larger of the videos that I put up there on um, James Scott, which is uh, actually rather long, uh, it's uh, an hour and a half long, he gives uh, probably a 50-minute lecture, and then there are questions and answers. And one of the questions that came up, it came from another professor, a Professor Brian. Uh, and I don't know anything about him other than the fact that he was called Brian, and he, he evidently was a professor. But he asked a question. Um, he says, uh, he found it all fascinating. He says, there's good things and bad things about living under a state regime. I know we all hate it, especially in April, which I guess is April 15th at tax time. Uh, but there are certain benefits. For example, someone is willing to extract resources from one group and spend it, for example, on teaching kids, kids to read. He says, we all probably were educated by the state. I wasn't, but most people are. The cost of living in the state, are if they are bad enough that we want to flee, he says, uh, we will evidently lose that ability to read. Because, And this question was spawned from the fact that James talks about that many of these groups that live remotely like this, they become... Well, it used to be that they would become um, wanderers, uh, uh, migrating about, uh, following flocks. And, of course, Abraham. 
Abraham, see, he left the city-state of Ur, but unfortunately his father just went and started another city-state called Haran, named after his son who died in Ur. And Abraham realized by the revelation of God that I need to remove myself from the city-state. And he went off and became a Hebrew, a wanderer, and followed his flocks. And he, he set up altars. The altars he set up is a part of that art of not being governed. Now, in Sodom and Gomorrah, they had sacrifice. They had systems of welfare. They had walls around the city to keep the bad guys out, but also to keep the people in. Because they were subject people. They, The government owned the people. That was... The government's assets included the people themselves. Christ's government, no. That's not the way Christ's government operated. Christ came to set every man free. To return every man to his family and every man to his possessions. But he also came to preach the kingdom of God. So how does the kingdom of God work if everybody is free? They don't have anybody who's exercising authority one over the other. Yet they're functioning as a government. To understand that is to understand the art of not being governed. Now, I I didn't find anything. And I haven't read the book, but I haven't found anything yet that leads me to, to believe that James Scott pointed this out. But I'm showing you the correlation. Abraham was leaving the state, the city-state called Ur and Haran. Eventually he left Haran. And he did it with many souls, it says. And evidently this is after a long period of time of going back and coming out and going back. And then finally he left with many souls. And they followed him. And he set up these altars. And we have articles and books that are written showing you how these altars were actually living altars. There were altars of clay and there was altars of stone. The stones were really a gathering of men. You gave your sacrifice to those men, which was a free will offering, which we see over and over again in the Old Testament. And those free will offerings provided the religious benefit of welfare. They took care of the needy of their society. And we show how that Corban functioned in ancient Israel with the Levites as the minister and certain requirements to be a Levite. I mean, you could be born a Levite but not want to follow those requirements and then you would no longer be considered a Levite. You had to follow those requirements. Now, under the Hasmonean dynasty before Jesus Christ, they changed some of those requirements for being a Levite and said, oh, you don't have to follow that anymore. And they rationalized it by reinterpreting the Torah. And so when Christ came on the scene, the Levites were not doing, most of the Levites, some were still holding out. Most of them were not doing what Moses required. They weren't following Moses. They were claiming to follow Moses, but they weren't. And the Pharisees were amongst those who did that. And I'm... I'm Avoiding telling you exactly what it was that they changed, but we have a hint at that, and we write about that. But we we see in the biblical text Barnabas, who was known as Hoses, who was a Levite in Cyprus, had property in his own name that he could sell. 
And he took the money that he received from selling that property and put it at the feet of the apostles and became known as Barnabas. Well, if you go back in the ancient text, Levites could not own land. They had no inheritance in the land. If they had land that they had access to, they did not have clear title to it. If they sold their right to it, any Levite could come and buy it back on demand at the price that you paid for it. So you couldn't make any improvements on it because they could come back and uh, actually they may not even have to give the price. They would just come back and reclaim it because they could redeem it at any time. It didn't necessarily say they had to pay you the price that you paid for it. So the point is you you really didn't own it if you bought it from a Levite because the Levite did not own the land with the right to sell it. But Barnabas, Hoses did. He sold it because that was one of the things that were brought in by the Hasmoneans. But anyway, let's get back to this. The reason I mention that is this art of not being governed as a nation required a class of people that had certain drawbacks to their status because they were going to be representatives of that government. You had to have representatives of that government. You couldn't just be a, a million people. You had to have somebody who could go out and speak to other governments. But if you incorporated a government where it could impose taxes, draft an army, create a central treasury... Uh, that government would be composed of your rights. It would take away your right and it would say, now you have to give me 20% of everything you produce. That would make you in a corvi, in, in that state of bondage. Because what, you know, 20% of you belong to the state. If you had that ceiling limit, they couldn't take more than 20%. If you don't have it, they can take 30%, 40%, 50%. And then if they could accumulate property and property rights, you know, just before we went on the air, the radio was talking about the fact that uh, the government could come in and make rules about land that you purchase and say you can't use it for this, you can't use it for that, and it's land use. And they talk about a victory. Well, it's it's kind of a short-lived victory because it really it pointing out the fact that you don't really own your land. And we explain all that that you don't really own your land either. Levites didn't own the land for themselves; they owned it in common with all other Levites. That's why, if a Levite sold land, any Levite could come along and redeem that land because they owned it in common. This particular class of individual we call Levites uh, in, in the Old Testament it actually existed at the time of Abraham and we called them stones. And they were the ones who formed the altars. Now what was the purpose of these altars? Social welfare. And, but the difference between that social welfare really and today's social welfare because the, the priests of today for for your modern Christian society, your modern Jewish society, 
They're priests. They may have guys that they go to and they call them priests or ministers. But the real priests that are fulfilling the role of taking care of one another is uh, the guy down there at the Social Security office. The guy that's down there at the welfare office. They're the ones who take care of the needy of your society. And they have the funds to do it for two reasons. Not only because they take away from one class of citizen like the uh, Professor Bryan was saying. But also because they can borrow money because of their corporate nature. They could borrow money from somebody else that will have to be paid back by the citizens of the United States. You see, so he thinks it's fine when you look at his, uh, the benefit of the state. And he, and he hits it right on the head. The problem is he doesn't see how bad it is. The benefit of the state is that, uh, you know, for example, he says, is that someone is willing to extract resources from one group in society and spend it as a benefit for education to teach children to read or provide them with health care. You know, if you need chemo, (laughs) you need radiation treatment for your cancer. They can take money away from your neighbor and pay the doctor. Isn't that amazing? But they can also, if there isn't enough money, they can borrow money from somebody and not only take it away from your neighbor, but take it away from your neighbor's children. This is what the state does. Because the state is corporate. And there's a corporate nature to the church. And the church is the ministers that Christ appointed to take care of the needy of society. To bear fruit. But in order to bear fruit, you had to know the art of not being governed by the world. You had to be living in the world, but not of the world. You had to care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. And you had to provide for your neighbor. Those of you who have needed to share to provide for. And you need to have a class of people, like the Levites, like the ministers of the early church, whose business it is to take care of the needy of society. Now, they can't do that without your support, without your regular sacrifice. Those of you who have, share with those that don't have enough. Now, the difference between the systems of the world and the systems set up by Christ is you get to choose how much to give, who to give to, how often to give, when to give, what to give, The whole thing. The power. You are the treasurer of the kingdom of God. Because you, I should say this, you are the treasury of the kingdom of God. You choose what to give. And then, but you have a class of people who receive it in this sacred purpose trust to redistribute it to the needy of your society. If they don't do a good job, you're the overseer of that choice. 
you say, you know, he's doing a bad job. He's wasting money on these guys and he's wasting money on those guys and he's spending too much and he, he completely overlooked this widow and she died in her apartment. You know, and I'm not going to give to him anymore. I'm going to look for another guy to give to. Or you can be like some people who says, well, I can't find anybody worthy to give to, so I'm just not going to give at all. It, it's a certain kind of person who should be free in these societies. It takes a certain kind of person. And this is what Christ was looking for, is those certain kinds of people who had it written on their hearts already. Not only to, to be independent, self-reliant, and to take care of their own family, but were willing to contribute to take care of others who might actually be in need. I remember up in Idaho, there's a woman who... Husband, very independent, built their own house. They grew their garden. He worked out, made money and supported his family. They didn't take any welfare. They home-taught their kids. Very independent. Then suddenly he got sick. He got really sick. Got sicker and sicker. Couldn't work. Couldn't bring in the money. They had the place paid for, but they eventually had... They didn't have any money coming in and nobody to help them. And he died. She had all these kids and she was trying to take care of the kids and make the money to pay the taxes. She couldn't pay the taxes. Now the property was worth over half a million dollars. It's on a lake. Forested. Beautiful. House. All built. But she just couldn't do it alone. He thought he could. She couldn't. When he died, she was left alone. And under tremendous strain, lacking sleep, working hard, she lost the place to a tax sale. You know, a few thousand dollars behind on taxes and they get a half a million dollar place that they sold for like, I can't remember what it was. It was like $150,000 or something like that. Somebody made out like a bandit. In the middle of a Christian community, they allowed the state to rob that widow. And I, I, I've given that example before and I could give other examples. But it goes on all the time. It's because you don't really live in a Christian community. The Christians aren't really being Christian. They have they follow the ways of the Pharisees more than the ways of Christ. They have lost the art of not being governed by Caesar. Because they don't come together and take care of one another. And yet they still think that they are Christians. Yet they have found someone, as Professor Bryan says, who is willing to extract resources from one group and spend it for what they think they should spend it. Now, I mean, your tax dollars have gone to transgender operations. You... A guy was arrested, put in jail, and he he sued the state. And he says, I was in the middle of getting my transgender operation to say become, I guess he was becoming a woman or something. (laughs) And a sex change operation. And he sued the state and got the state to pay for his sex change operation while he was in jail. Paying his debt to society at $50,000 a year. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is actually 
it was costing society $50,000 a year to keep this guy in jail, and now it had to pay for a sex change operation too. Crazy. Just crazy. And that's what comes because you have lost the art of not being governed. You had to pay into that. All these people that you have in jail, it's costing you from forty to sixty thousand dollars a year to keep them in jail. Some of them are in in jail for stealing less than a hundred dollars worth of stuff, or you know maybe a couple hundred dollars worth of stuff. And you're there's people who are in jail for life for stealing nine videotapes or a bunch of golf clubs. They they got life in prison because they had had other. Uh, uh, felonies against them. But they're spending life because of that crime in jail. Crazy. Crazy. That's going to cost you millions of dollars in in your government. And and everybody knows this and nobody can do anything about it. It's because you're suffering a psychosis. You actually think government is a good thing. Now, I don't want to get rid of government. I absolutely do not want to get rid of the government. I think the government plays a vital role today. Because there's so many of you who are workers of iniquity that need to be punished. God allows you to create a government that will eventually punish you. One of the things that James points out is that the average person in the States... You know, collectively, they outproduced the people that were in the hills, that were not a part of the state, in the forest or whatever. The people in the city-states outproduced them. But they were less healthy. And they died out. You know, diseases, wars, famine. You couldn't have organized war Major organized wars, you know, tens of thousands of troops marching in without the city-state. Because that's how you incorporate the people and then you can take their sons and daughters and put them in the army and have them march on the next country or invade this country or bomb that country. You can do that because you've created the state. The state only survives by reaching out and drawing more people in from those free people outside the state. We're going to show you how this happened with Abraham and with the early church. And we're going to show you why it won't work tomorrow. Anyway, when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, I was going to talk to you a little bit about Abraham and how uh, these uh, city-states depended upon people constantly coming in. You see this with China today, is that they have these these great cities in China where uh, people are working and producing and they're gathering huge amounts of uh, U.S. currency as well as other currencies and cornering the market on those currencies because it gives them some kind of uh, control 
in the markets and uh, and uh, you know I mean there's even movies being made about that uh, but the reality is there and some people think that uh, China is going to be the new U.S. Uh, dominant uh, uh, producer in the world and it's certainly going to be quite a challenging uh, individual uh, nation because it's got these millions of billion people that are working there but what's happening, if you actually get down on the ground, America rose to greatness when people went out and worked and got to keep what they produced. Rome became great when people got to go out and produce and get to keep what they produced. And uh, the the little colonies of Jamestown and, uh, and Plymouth uh, began to succeed when the people got to work and keep what they produced. Rome began a process of decline when they started instituting an income tax and began to tax people on the land they had and tax people on what they sold in the marketplaces, sales tax and uh, uh, transportation tax. They had one of the most complicated tax systems and it became... Uh, not to your advantage to produce more. The more you produce, the more you were taxed. And Rome began its process of decline, and slavery became more popular. Well, that's what's happening in China already. Is that they're taking, you know, in the in the rural areas, they got fifty percent unemployment, yet people are surviving because they still have the art of not being governed. They're kept out in these rural areas. But they're still getting married and having children, producing those children to grow up and want to go to the cities to make money. And uh, they come to the cities and they use them up and they uh, poison them and they uh, uh, they abuse them and uh, they rob them of their labor. And if they survive, they might make it, but they they eventually are dying. Now, China has always had a little bit more practical approach to big city life than uh, many of the uh, European countries. Uh, European states and a lot of other states that were created didn't have any way of getting rid of what they called the night waste, you know, the, uh, the feces of human production. And China early on realized they had to get that stuff out of town and they created ways in which to do that. But European cities were a little bit slower to do that. They created sewer systems, but uh, they dumped a lot of stuff into water and poisoned people and you had uh, outbreaks. But even in China, because of its tremendous congestion, they still have trouble with cholera and all these stuff. But now, with his industrial increase, they're... People are being poisoned by their industrial waste. And they're they're trying to fight that. But the reality is, is using up the worker in China has been their tradition for thousands of years. And they're going to continue to do that. And so, but they have these vast areas where they keep to pull in new youth and use them up. Because they keep those vast areas somewhat suppressed economically, certainly freedom-wise. People worry about the corporate state taking over. The corporate state, you know, corporations are a bad thing and everything. Well, cooperatives are corporations. They're a form of corporation. And cooperatives 
if you if the people would come together and form companies and finance one another's company, they would become more successful. They wouldn't go to a bank. They would go to you know, their congregations or their congregation of congregations and borrow money on share base to produce a company where they would, they're not loaning the money at interest. They're loaning the money as a share to the company and now they share in the profit of the company. And what you do with a cooperative is that a person, the more they work in the company, excuse me, uh, the more they work in a company, the more shares in the company they can have. So now the profit of the company becomes a part of the interest of the individual and they begin to produce in that company. And you do this in, in congregations and form these cooperatives and you can, you can start becoming more successful. And financing your welfare becomes incidental. It's not difficult. But you're also creating bonds in your community. And I give the example of Big Fat Greek Wedding a number of times. How you see those families. You know, one ran the laundry and one ran a restaurant. And then somebody else had the travel agency. And if they needed help, they just called upon the families and they shifted people around so that they could keep going. Somebody got sick and they needed more help over here. So-and-so would come. They would get paid. But they were constantly helping one another out. And they started realizing that some of the people in the family had special skills. And, you know, the guy wanted to learn to be an artist. And that was his dream. And the family started recognizing that and starts helping him do that. To follow their dream. And, uh, and... They work together and they are forgiving and they are giving and they all become more successful because they still from the old country, they still had the art of not being governed. You see, because if you have to go to a bank and borrow the money, that bank now has a governing power over you. They will foreclose on you, mercilessly foreclose on you. But your congregation may not do that. Uh, this is why we encourage people to form uh, cooperative banks, which you know, which are uh, they're not really banks; they're uh, credit unions, where you get to get your members, and you, it's a different type of system. This is what I believe the early church was doing. So there's lots of different things that you could start to learn to learn the art of not being governed, and why? One is because it's character building. Because you have to forgive and give the things that Christ said to, said to do. You have to care about one another. You have to, in order to increase that care, you have to sacrifice for one another. And then people will start caring about one another. In the society of the city-state, you don't care about one another. You care about your father, the state. Everything comes by, from the state. You have to make stay right with the state or he'll throw you into jail at the expense of everybody else. <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole different approach to living your life and governing yourself in relationship to everybody else. And we've lost that art. So how does this relate to Abraham? I said I'd talk about Abraham. Abraham 
had set up these altars, which I tell you were living altars of men who cared about one another as much as they cared about themselves. And, and they had to in order to succeed. They they had come out of the city-state. These many souls had come out of the city-state of Ur and Haran and probably other city-states who came and they joined Abraham. I want to be a part of what Abraham's doing. And so they had these altars that received free will offerings and took care of the needy. And it created a bond between them. You know, this, this community had trouble. These communities way over here sent aid and help. Now, suddenly, uh, these kings come through who have allied themselves, put a big army into the field, financed it, supplied it, and now it's going around conquering one of these city-states after another. Conquers Sodom, conquers Gomorrah, along with a lot of others. And take a spoil. They take gold, silver. They take captives and they take them off. And they're going to enslave these people in another area. The Indians were doing this kind of stuff on another scale. But this idea of stealing people from one area and taking them to another area and making them subject was, it was commonplace. And uh, now, it, it's it's more subtle. People want to escape the bondage, the corvy bondage in their country because the taxes are too exorbitant. You know, uh, they can go to another country. Like, uh, you know, you can have uh, taxes, I think, up to income tax can be 56% in Australia. And that may have changed. That may be an older figure. Well, if you wanted to get away from that, you probably wouldn't move to France because France, they're going to require as much as 75% <laughs> of your taxes. So you probably try to move to some place that, you know, if, and you see wealthy people doing this. They'll move to places like St. Kitts <laughs> out there in the Caribbean. And the, if you, it used to be if you paid $40,000 in some sort of building project in St. Kitts, you could get citizenship in St. Kitts. And you could make a lot of money and you'd be a citizen in St. Kitts. And so, and not a citizen of the United States. And so, therefore, when you made money, you didn't have to pay the exorbitant income. It's, you know, it's a tax shelter thing that people do. And then, but then they supposedly going to travel around with their St. Kitts passport instead of their U.S. passport. Now that they, because so many people are doing this, they've got laws to prevent that and penalties if you try that or take so much money out of the United States and everything. So I'm not recommending any of that stuff. I'm just showing you that people do these kinds of things. What I'm trying to tell you to do is learn the art of not being government which is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. While you're in the system that you're in, continue to pay your taxes. People always want to know how to get out of the system. What you have to do is get the system out of your heart. And so what happened to Abraham? He finally left Ur, gave up his right. He was going to be an heir to the throne of Ur. Uh, not Ur, but uh, of Haran. Because his father was Haran, and he gave that up to Nahor. And he went out and became this Hebrew wanderer, setting up these altars of charity to take care of the needy and making allies with the other people who were living outside of city-states. 
Now you got this king coming through, conquering one city-state after another, which is actually a group of kings. And they're all for exercising authority and subjecting the population and everything. And they, but they had enough popularity to form these armies that go out and take a spoil. And they captured Sodom and they took away his nephew as prisoner. Overnight, he gets hundreds of his own men together to form a militia to go and attack this invading army who's invaded this area. Is taking these city-states and stealing people and gold and everything away. You know, kind of, you know, the Red Dawn kind of thing in those days. But overnight, he was able to not only accumulate these this militia for himself, but others where he had helped them set up these altars. They sent men too. And he was able to muster a large enough army to defeat in one night these these armies that were going in and conquering walled-in city-states one after another. And he, and he was able to do this because he had created this system of charity, these living altars that were aiding one another. If you go read our article on the Red Heifer, you'll see that this this extends to your neighbors, not just the people in your, your immediate network, but even other people outside of your network. This is this they're showing you in these stories. It's not about killing sheep on piles of dead stone. It's about loving one another, caring about one another sacrificing daily for one another in a daily ministration that takes care of the needy and doesn't allow your widows and orphans to be robbed. You you, you people don't realize that if that, that family in Idaho had come together with other families, it never would have happened. They could have easily, you know, uh, uh, ten families could have easily paid the taxes on that property. And she could have kept it. They could have helped her with her children, helped her with her homeschooling, helped her uh, find work. The kids were only a few years away from being able to go out and get work themselves. Help those kids become contributing members of society. Instead, she ends up on welfare. They end up in the, you know, uh, in the system. You know, the, the welfare system, the, the, they actually were going to farm those kids out. I don't know if they ever did it, uh, you know, through, uh, you know, their, uh, because she was having a mental breakdown by the time this all happened. After she, you know, they sold her place and going to take it away from her. And, and she, she was just exhausted, just beat to the ground. But if she had gotten into a Christian, a real Christian, not this fake Christian network you see out there called churches, but a real Christian network doing what Christ and the early church was doing, that would have never happened to her. She wouldn't have lost that place. Million dollar asset, a half a million dollar asset, probably a million dollars today. Somebody made out like a bandit stealing from that widow and orphan and those orphans. You you guys are missing the art 
of coming together like Christ said. You're missing what Christ said about being a real Christian. You need to gather together in these congregations and start learning the skill of caring about one another where you strengthen the poor. And and this takes time. Abraham took many years before many souls came out with him. But while he was doing this, while he was setting up these altars of charity, people caring about one another, he was strengthening themselves so that when there was an invading army coming in and conquering Sodom and Gomorrah, he was able to overnight defeat that invading army. Now, the king of Sodom Sodom comes out and says, Thank you for saving our people and all the stuff that these bad kings came in and stole. He knew the right of spoil. This king knew the right of spoils. He says, Abraham, you go ahead. Uncontested, you keep all the stuff. But give us back the people. Why? Because the people are the assets. They're the surety for the debt of the state. Now, I don't know if Sodom was borrowing money against their future, but it certainly had these people as subject, part of a corvi. He knew that if I get the people back in the state, where they're now subject citizens of my nation, my tiny little city-state, now magnify that by the all the states, get these people back, these assets back, they will work and I will be rich again as king and ruler of this land. Except now there's no place to go. There's no place to hide. There's no place to run to. There is no wilderness out there to take your flocks and wander between city-states. They've expanded their borders till they touch everywhere, including in this Zomia uh, area uh, surrounded by seven other countries, uh, oriental countries. Or Asian countries, I should say. The uh, what was? Do you remember Abraham's response? I won't even take a buckle. I didn't go into it, but I think he pretty much said, "I ain't giving you the people back." But of course, knowing the nature of Abraham, he's not going to subjugate those people like they will be in Sodom. He let them choose. This is what Christ did. You can choose to stay a part of the temple of Pharisees or you can opt out and become a part of Christianity. And many Jews in Judea continued to follow the ways of the Pharisees because they had set up a, a Corbin system that was compelled offerings under Herod. Those of you who haven't been following that, you know, go read our article on Corbin. Why was it making the word of God to none effect? Because it wasn't a free will offering anymore. You freely signed up, but once you signed up, you had to pay in, and they told you how much. And they had Gabi and Molokai tax collectors going around, making sure that you paid in your fair share. That was making the Word of God to none effect, because it was not based on faith, hope, and charity, and the perfect law of liberty. It was based on force. And until John, uh, John the Baptist, everybody thought that was a good idea. Like this Professor Brian who thinks it's it, it's a good idea that we got someone who will force people to contribute so we can have free education. It's not free. It's a product of force. That very choice that he thinks is so good is the seed of cancer in society. 
when Saul imposed a tax on the people, he was told that he, because he did that foolish thing, he would lose his kingdom. Because you have done this foolish thing where you have got someone willing to extract resources from one group in your society, your kingdom will fail. Your kingdom is now operating with the unrighteous mammon. It will fail. Because you have signed agreements, because you have made the state your father, because you have gone to public education, because your parents have, have sold you into this corvee system of statutory labor, you have to pay the tax. But you can take your spare time and start learning the art of not being governed. How to come together. How to care about one another. How to love one another. How to oversee and love the actions of one another. Rebuking one another. Bringing people back to the ways of Christ. The kingdom of God is spiritual. But the spirit forms patterns in our physical world. If you are killing people, you are not following God. If you are murdering people, you are not following God. If you are committing adultery, you are not following God. If you are bearing false witness, you are not following God. You are off the path. If you are coveting your neighbor's goods, if you think it is good that you have found someone willing to extract resources from part of your your neighbor's, and your neighbor's children, so that you can have free benefits. You're not following Christ. If you're not following Christ, you're not a Christian. You may be a modern Christian, but you're not a Christian. The art of seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness means that you have to start practicing the ways of Christ. This is why we have created a network based on geography. If you're on Romania, that's where you start. If you're in North Carolina or South Carolina, you join that group. If you're in the Dakotas, you join that group. And you form congregations. And when you come together, you will not come together with perfect people. Which is good, because you should be welcome amongst non-perfect people. Being a non-perfect person yourself. You're going to get a chance to start caring about one another. And if you work at this diligently striving, seeking the kingdom of God, seeking a network of people that actually care for one another. Start out with little things. Like the, the you know, the Good Samaritan insurance policy, which is assurance, I guess. They that that's close to the kingdom. You don't have to start the whole thing. Just do it in your local congregation. And then let your local congregation you will link the ministers together. So they can know if someone gets injured in Texas, everybody could come together and help them out. And then they know that, well, these people saved us, saved us thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars by helping us, by being there for us. And then they will actually start to tithe. When they get back on their feet, they will actually start to tithe Then. Maybe 20, maybe 30% into the network. And there will be an abundance. This is what happened in Plymouth, in Jamestown. Everybody, you get to keep what you produce. 
but you also need to learn to share what you produce in a way that strengthens your neighbor. And that is the art of not being governed. Until we meet again, may peace be upon your house and may God be with you. have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.